Everybody is murderous in their attentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back. Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! Like shapeshifters, only a lot more into evil folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real. Hello the internet and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast where we discuss political science and popular culture as always hosted by Peter Sleeman and Brock Roderman. This episode is about Middle Earth, yay Lord of the Rings, it's our first Lord of the Rings episode and it's about development which is something that Brock and I both do in our master's courses. Well, a specific um, part of development, it's more modernization than... than specifically yeah, modernization. Specific. So... um. Brock, can I give you my rubric for what modernization is? No, because we first have to tell the audience what, what we're applying modernization to. We're applying it to Mordor, right? Where all the yeah. orcs went and they worked for Sauron and they're trying to achieve a state of modernity. And now you can tell them about your rubric for modernity. Yeah, yeah, thank you for your permission. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what is modernity? Um, modernity is a concept that has been developed in the world as we have it today. It originates from the Enlightenment period in the Renaissance of Europe, but it's basically what, what everybody... Years, what centuries are you looking at? Uh, 1700s, 1800s was the era of Enlightenment and the beginning of modernity, the Scientific Revolution. Okay, what about the 1600s, 1650 specifically? Spe- uh, see, when, especially when it comes to political modernity. Yeah, see, now you're talking about the political modernity. So let me break it up. Modernity is broken up into three specific categories first off we have what we call scientific modernity that was the beginning of the scientific revolution that started with francis bacon so essentially what people look at is looking at the world from an experimental point of view from a epistemological point of view from an empirical point of view and basically not just believing that the world is uh, the way it is and that there are forces that are beyond the scope of human knowledge, but that human beings can inherently understand what the world is by experimenting with it. There were two important factors to that um, scientific revolution was learning that we can control, we can conduct controlled experiments. And Mm -hmm. simply by observing the changes in the uncontrolled experiment, we could determine the causal relationship uh, between variables. So learning that we could look at something in a controlled manner and then change it up and look at the changes that occurred because of the changes we made, you could say this change was uh, is a cause of the of uh, another effect. And exactly. That was so like it was a, the finding out of cause and effect. Yeah, and that contributed. It's important because it didn't just apply to science. They used that scientific observation principle to apply to many other modes of learning, like politics and economics and societal development. And so you had this... Um, sort of, uh, what can we call it? Like a Nirvana age where everyone thought, I can see the future and the future is perfect because we can control it. We can experiment mm. and conduct experiments and observe everything and learn and con- and combine all this knowledge to make society better. Exactly. And so the, the, the most important thing for me is that human beings started to believe that they weren't at the mercy of their environment, but were in fact masters of the environment. That Yes, that's through- really important, yeah. Yeah, through knowledge and understanding and experimentation, human beings could gain control of the natural world and thereby use it to improve their own lives. Absolutely. And, um, 
So then I think that that's obviously, I mean, that obviously had negative consequences such as global warming, nuclear weapons, but obviously way more positive outcomes such as microwaves and modern medicine and all the cool things that we have in the modern world. The ability to listen to podcasts is a pretty big one. Um, <laughs> but what I, that led to what I categorize as the second aspect of modernization, which so is what's the third. The third is political modernization, but we'll be getting, I'll get there once I've dealt with the second one, oh, which is industrialization and capitalism. Because you couldn't have industrialization without the scientific basis of creating mechanical machines, things that were able to take the labor load off human beings and able to transfer that load to factories. So mass production starts for the first time with industrialization. And without going into the whole thing of the industrial revolution, importantly, what this allowed was the creation of a huge amount of capital. That and, capital and labor. It commoditized labor where people were no longer seen. You couldn't own people anymore. That you had to, they had to work of their own free accord. But for them to earn a living now, they had to sell their their labor hours. They were given wages at the end of the week. So it's not just exactly. the increase in the amount of capital and what people could own, but also in what they could sell. In other words, their labor time. Yeah, and obviously Marx had a huge problem with the ability to sell labor. Yeah. Um, he didn't like that at all because it alienated people from their work as well as um, taking them out of the control of the means of production. But I don't want to get into goddamn <laughs> Marx. Um, but again, importantly, was that it allowed the, the creation of surplus capital. And that surplus capital is what was able to be reinvested and create the businesses that we have today, the large corporations, which allowed for further and further development of industrialization and eventually led to the modern age we have today. It's all this based on the profit drive. Um, if With all this capital being accumed, accumulated, accumed, that's not even a freaking word. With all this capital mm -hmm. being accumulated, um, we realized that with, uh, with, with knowledgeable investment, you could make the capital earn more capital. Mm. And so businesses mm. were created to manipulate those processes and find gaps in the market where that could take place in order to accrue a profit and thereby create more money. So you yeah. see how industrialization went hand in hand with capitalism. Yeah. And there were, there were three really good books for our, for our listeners to read if you want to know more about this. The one is Das Kapital by Marx, where he gives one of the best explanations of the system. The other is Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, which is um, one of the first books on economics. And the other one is... I had it in my mind now, and I can't remember what it was. Uh, oh, um, Max Weber's The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, which is a quite a novel theory about why this happened in Europe and not in anywhere else, um, just if you want to do some further reading. But uh, now... If, you wanted, if you've already read those three books, which you should have in your undergrad of political science or economics or anything like that, and you want to do a little further reading, if you haven't already read any of Ke uh, John Maynard Keynes's work, that's um, mm -hmm. that's some interesting stuff that I think builds on those those first three readings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he took a lot of his work from from those works, and obviously, building on political science of Hobbes and Locke. But now we get to what we're the most interested in, which is political modernity. And um, so, the political modernity is based around these ideas, but also to a certain extent precedes them. So we can actually give a date to the beginning of political modernity, which was 1648, which was the signing of the Treaty of Westphalia, 
which ended the Thirty Years' War in Europe. Now, the war itself is not that important, but what is important is that this created the state system that we have today, what we, Brock and I often called the Westphalian state system, and it allowed the creation of the, uh, the beginnings of a modern state system, because for the first time in history, you had very specific areas that were controlled by very specific political entities. And, and the no most important other... of which was the authoritative power, legitimate power, and authority of the state being held accountable by the people. So there was a lot of uh, value attributed to the, the masses for the first time. Yeah. And also what's important is that that power was seen as sovereign within those borders. No other power could intervene in any way except for war, which they didn't want, or diplomacy. But no other power could intervene in the regulations of laws within those territories. So that was very important from the point of view of modernity. But adding on to that the ideas of capitalism, industrialization, and the scientific revolutions, you had the beginnings of bureaucratic sciences. You had people starting to utilize new ideas for the sake of government. So a meritocratic government based on the um, the best people doing the best job in the bureaucracy, which allowed governments like France, England, and Prussia to become incredibly powerful by governing their territories with very sophisticated accounting and bureaucratic means. Um, and all of those three together led to the social modernity, which Brock is going to explain a bit better than I can, I think. No, I'm not going to talk too much about social modernity. I don't think it's really needed. Well, I can be a bit more brief about socioeconomic development and because that's essentially what I want to talk about when it comes to Mordor. Because mm -hmm. it's, um, if you combine those three factors, if you combine the meritocracy of the political of the, this new political modernity and you, the scientific ability to study and create knowledge, as well as the industrialized capitalism of, of uh, the modern age, you find that people actually just want to sit back, learn, be awarded the opportunity to be the best, and mm. use that opportunity to also create some money at the same time. Yeah. yeah. So you take your best workers, you take your, your best personnel, you give them the opportunity, reward them for their merit, and you allow them to go and um, earn recognition and make money for you. So I'm keeping this general and specific to take it out of the context of the Westphalian state and replied more to the way that Sauron managed his hordes of orcs in Mordor and uh, to understand what his political purpose was, why he was the bad, seen as the bad guy in the Lord of the Rings mm. and in Middle-earth. And if he had been, if he had won the, the battle for Middle-earth and he became the Supreme Lord, what would it look like and how would he have gotten there given mm. these new di these dynamics we've just discussed? Of socioeconomic modernity. Yeah. So let's let's start talking about um, Middle Earth. I mean, it's it's actually quite. I th well, I find it quite difficult to apply, you know, real world principles to Middle Earth because it's a little bit weird. You know, they've got magic, they've got different things, they've got people who live forever. I mean, the elves are immortal essentially, yeah. Yeah. so it makes politics and capitalism very difficult in that world. But I mean, and I don't you think you have any elective system in in Middle no. Earth. Yeah, and you're right. Even the even the, the 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 was it the mayor of the Shire? Who was like the yeah or Hobbiton? Yeah, they had a mayor. Yes, but he wasn't elected, was he? Um, was he? Shit, I, can't I don't know. I don't actually know the political association of the Shire, like what how they work, how they get what they're in, because they they've got like a gamma. Because uh, Samwise's father was the the gamma, who was no the, man, the was, gaffer. 
Gaffer, sorry, I'll edit that out. Uh, or maybe we won't, I don't know. Uh, the Gaffer, who, he was like a position of uh, authority in the Shire. Uh, but I don't know if he's elected or not. Yeah, but it does add to the, complica- the complexity of, um, or the nuances, should I say, of Middle Earth, because it's, you know, it resembles our modern Westphalian state system in very few ways. Yeah, I mean, they do have, and there are no specific territories, except for maybe Gondor, which has specific borders. And Rivendell. The Rivendell has specific borders. Um, Lothlorien, they, they, I mean, there's That's definitely kind of like a boundary. That's kind just a forest. Yeah. And um, obviously you've got um, the Riders of Rohan. I mean, Rohan itself is a very specific state. But, I mean, would you agree with me to say that essentially they are a medieval feudal system? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with you there. Especially the men. I mean, the the, the, the humans are, are medieval in their political ways of doing things. Definitely. Okay, so I, I, from the point of view of the elves, though, it becomes very difficult because the elves are immortal. Their leaders are immortal. Like, those guys were just created as the leaders of the elves. You know, they had Elrond and Glorfindel yeah. and um, uh, Galadriel and yeah. Galadriel's husband. Uh, they were just... The leaders. They just get to be the leaders because they were created as leaders. That's the end of the story. Yeah. So there's not much scope for, like, revolution amongst the elves or anything. Yes. And also what is uh, equally notable is that in most of, in almost all of these societies, bar Mordor, um, there was a certain sense of stability. There was, you know, they had their, their prosperous periods and their less prosperous periods. But because um, leadership was almost um, inherited, there was no sort of, there was a, not a lot of drive to recreate the system or to rebel against it or evolve in, in drastic ways. So when, mm. you know, when Sauron gets an army of orcs who we find out through the Silmarillion is not actually his army and kind of fetches them, um, because they were, you know, they were once elves. And, yeah. uh, in fact, it wasn't him who fetched them. Am I, am I right? It was his master. No, so the, so what happens is just to give a bit of background to this is that, the uh, Sauron is actually not the big bad guy of the whole universe of the Lord of the Rings. The big bad guy is actually a guy called Morgoth, who was originally known as the Valar. Um, fuck, I sound like such a nerd. Um, who was originally known as the uh, the Valar Malkor. Now, Malkor was pissed off with the way that um, the Eo, who is the one, basically the god of, of the whole universe, was creating the universe, and he wanted to experiment with new ways of doing things. Basically... They put it, uh, uh, Tolkien puts it into ideas of, uh, music. Melkor introduced a discord into the, um, universal music. Sauron is a, um, a Valar who is his subordinate. Now, when some of the other Valar created the elves, Morgoth took the elves and turned them into orcs. Some of um, the elves. To, some of the elves to t- turn them into orcs. And that's basically the army that, uh, Sauron uses. Um, so, so that's, that's also where the um, do they also are they also immortal? Mm, that I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think that they live forever. Um, I think they probably lost that because they don't have that. I don't know the light. Because my whatever. understanding is that they're tainted elves. They're like dark elves. So exactly. Maybe they, yeah. They might be lost because it, we, you know, it's described in the book how they don't have the height and the speed of of a regular elf. But they're definitely uh, they're stronger. I mean, a lot of them are stronger, yeah. especially yes, the Orkai are stronger. No, but yeah. Orkai are different. That's not. They aren't elves. The Urukai are goblins cross orcs. Yes. yes. Um. But even the goblins were originally like 
I think that they were corrupted dwarves. I think you're right, um, but I don't. I'm not sure about the goblins' her, um, heritage. But what's important here, though, is that the orcs are not animals. They are they're they're people with their own desires and needs and wants. They they have a a thing that they want to do. So let's let's try and structure this a little bit better and say that. Why is why is it that the whole world sees Sauron as necessarily the bad guy? I mean, we just accept that Sauron's the bad guy because that's what they tell us in the movie. But like, I think the question of this podcast is: Is Sauron actually the bad guy in Lord of the Rings? Well, the way that the book sets it up, and I'll say he, yes, he is the bad guy, and he needs to be the bad guy because of the way. If you remember the way that Elrond tells the story in the beginning of the films, was he? Um, he, said, he describes how power-hungry and how greedy Sauron was for power, that he amalgamated all the power of all the other rings of power into his one yeah. ring. So he had one yeah. ring that could rule all the other rings of power, and he did that mm. in order to rule everyone. Like That was inherently against the existence of the other races. Nobody else had ever wanted to do that. Nobody else had ever tried to do that. To try like The dwarves had never tried to rule over the elves. They hated them. Mm. They wanted to fight them, but they never wanted to rule them. Yeah. And where, where Sauron did, he wanted to conquer Middle Earth. So yes, he's definitely the bad guy. But his means of getting there is a little less black and white. And his means of of creating the power, the the you could almost say earthly power, is he created an army. He didn't try and use it. He didn't rely entirely on black magic. He had a, a physical army. He had a a, a working army, a standing yeah. army, which he had to create, which he had to feed. Mm which he had to mm. provide arms for and armor and all these things were, you know, they were things of Middle Earth. They weren't necessarily yeah. the manifestations of, um, of magical power. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that in all those, I mean, whether you're talking about the movies or the books, Sauron and to a certain extent Saruman, who is Sauron's henchman, are the only characters or people or factions in the story that are going for progress. Everybody else just wants to kind of go back to this fanciful time where, like, everything was perfect. You know, the age of men when men were still connected to this great light. And the elves all want to go back to where they want. But Saruman and Sauron want to take the world forward. They want, you know, yes, they're bringing but, in new technologies, but new Peter, industrializations. They are, but they are being progressive, not for progression's sake. They are not modernizing to modernity. They are modernizing to conquer. They're modernizing to rule. And that's why that thing makes them the bad guys. So, no, the, you know, their ends kind of disqualify their means. Oh, sure. Like, I'm not, I'm definitely not arguing that they're good guys. I, d I don't think that an argument could be made for Sauron being the good guy. But I'm also not saying that the other people in the books are necessarily good either. Um, but why? Just you know, because they don't want to modernize? Well, okay. I think that the way that they treat the orcs is pretty goddamn bad. So, if you think about it from this point of view, the orcs are captured elves who have been tainted. Yes, tainted, that's really bad. But if we have some kind of modern, real-world example of that, people get captured in war all the time. They get, you know, they might get fucked up, they come back with PTSD. We think it's really bad when we treat those people with um, less respect, even though we do, but... We, that's not a good thing. We treat those people as heroes because that's what they are. But in Middle Earth, orcs aren't 
you know, they don't even remember that orcs used to be elves. And even that's even when they do remember, it's not important. They treat the, uh, the orcs as second class citizens. They're not even citizens. In fact, they're, they treat them worse than they would treat their animals. Um, and I think that you could draw a certain parallel between the way that the whole world sees orcs and the way that the apartheid government in South Africa saw black people. Because <laughs> no I imagine, I imagine that the elves will make specific arguments about the orbs. If, if I was to have this argument with, like, um, you know, Galadriel and say, hey, Galadriel, maybe the orcs are just people too. Maybe they <laughs> want stuff. And she'd be like, well, no, because they don't, you know, they're not smart enough or they don't have the ability to do it. That sounds very much like what Favut was saying during apartheid, that <laughs> Africans weren't able to have civilization. So in short of my argument, Galadriel's a goddamn racist. <laughs> <laughs> no no there's a uh, you've missed out. i think you you're uh loosely using the word treat i think gradual <laughs> would be happy to treat in quotation marks um the orcs with equal amounts of respect if they weren't trying to wipe her out right if they weren't trying to kill everyone in that lived in lothlorien um the fact that they're that they are aggressive and that they follow a leader and that they serve a leader who's bent on destroying middle earth uh, I think that 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 means enough to classify, you know, the the orcs as tainted second class, not even second class creatures or citizens. They are active enemies. They are things that they deserve to die, because right? they threaten okay. the the existence of everyone else. So it's not that Middle Earth treats the orcs so badly. It's that the orcs have created a negative perspective for themselves. If they didn't want to be hated and killed, they shouldn't be following Sauron. That sounds very much like victim shaming to me. Oh my God, that's like what people said to, you know, so many victims throughout history. If you didn't want to do this, then you shouldn't have been there in the first place. You know, like, oh, you didn't want to get, you're a black guy walking through Detroit and you didn't want to get shot by cops. Well, you so shouldn't you would have been walking down up, that so street. You, so if you were Aragorn, you would have walked up to the black gate and, and waved a white flag to the orcs asking them to be your friend. No, I, no, I, okay, at this point, I'm saying it's maybe a bit too late, but you know, you don't know that, I mean, this, this whole battle is thousands of years old. Who knew what kind of discussions were being had in the beginning? Well, There's you, always room for diplomacy, bro. Always. <laughs> yeah, but you're claiming, <laughs> you're claiming to know by putting words in Gladwell's mouth, telling, <laughs> telling us that she's, that she's a racist or whatever. No. Yes, it's The way that the apartheid government treated black people in South Africa was absolutely cruel because that's an accurate use of the word treat. Right? They treated people against the the rules of humanity. They broke every, all just about every human right that 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 exists. But um, but but when it comes to conflict, uh, th there was no effort. There was no effort whatsoever on the part of the orcs to try and d disqualify the fact that they were following a hell bent leader. They were actively mm -hmm. seeking the death and destruction of all other peoples in Middle Earth. I think that's. It means enough to, to announce that whatever progressive, modernizing ideas Sauron had, they were evil and he, and he deserved to die anyway. Okay, so then, but, but you agree with me that Sauron is trying to develop the orcs? I mean, is he using them as just a tool or are they his people? No, I don't think he sees them as his people. I think he sees them as his slaves. If you want to use, if you use the, the, the word treat, correctly in the in the context of middle earth he treated his orcs terribly you can read about the the hierarchical um uh, competition for power between orc clans that that pretty much wiped each other out they were more of a threat to themselves than they were to 
um, to anyone else on the battlefield. Um, they they were treated really badly by their master. I think he saw them as an opportunity for development, and he, he was aware of the need for development in and uh, modernization in order to create the things that were needed for war. So as long hold as on, the orcs served I, his, I disagree with you. Oh man, why? I disagree with you. Why? The, I agree with you that the orc clans were very antagonistic towards each other in the absence of Sauron. That when when Sauron wasn't there, they were fighting each other. It was chaos. But Sauron comes in, and suddenly they put aside their differences and get behind this greater cause of development of for the sake of their species. And they work together. You have different clans from different areas of Middle-earth all working together in Mordor. I mean, you've got a huge amount of orcs all in one place. They're not fighting with each other. I mean, yeah, maybe they have a few squabbles, but there's no warfare all under the enlightened leadership of Sauron. (laughs) (laughs) See, you're basically comparing Sauron to like, he's like the Middle-earth version of Nelson Mandela. No. Yes, yes, he is. He is Nelson Mandela. <laughs> no, he is Nelson no, Mandela. No, and, no. Uh, Aragorn if Nelson Mandela, is... <laughs> if Nelson Mandela spent maybe if he spent twenty-seven years reading Mein Kampf, and he, he would come out as a fascist uh, black leader. Then maybe you could say that Sauron is like him. No, There's, you cannot make that comparison. Okay, okay. So how about this? Let's compare Sauron to Hitler. Now, Hitler, bad guy, absolutely bad guy, but. In his leadership of Germany from 1920 to, you know, the 1920s onwards, he did a fair amount of good for the German people. You know, he brought their economy back up. He did some good work. He was a bad guy. Yes, I agree with you. Fascist leader. Absolutely horrible. But at the same time, is could you not say that Sauron is the Hitler of the Orcs? He's not annihilating them. He's looking after their best interests. Hmm. That's a good argument because many people posed that question when he was still alive to the author J.R.R. Tolkien, and and he hated it. He yeah, absolutely he hated, hated that it. comparison. But it it is unfortunately rather coincidental the way that he has compared the the, the east of Middle Earth, Mordor, to you know um, how comparable it seems to the east of Europe, which was you know Egypt, uh, Germany, and Poland at that time, and not to mention the fact this is really good, is that Sauron doesn't just unite the orcs. He unites the orcs with the Southrons, who are men. And they fight side by side. You don't see the orcs and the Southrons having a bit of a squabble. They're all in it together for the sake of Mordor. That's a bit of a stretch, Peter. The Southrons were mercenaries. They didn't fight side by side. As soon as they were paid, they left. They didn't agree to live with the orcs or under Sauron. They were completely just there for the money. But if Sauron had won, would they have stayed in a grand unified state of Orkdom? Are you saying the Southrons are like the Italians? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> they were in the south. They were they were kind of lazy. They fought with a, a manic style and they were just there for the money. <laughs> and we all know that the Italians rode into World War II riding big elephants. Like, that's just a fact. We know that. That's funny because I thought all Italian tanks only had one gear, which was reverse. Uh. <laughs> But I'd like to to just to give another piece of information as well. We know that the interpretation of the Lord of the Rings is exactly a antagonism against development. Sauron and Saruman do represent industrialization. They represent the development of Middle Earth, which 
J.R. Tolkien was against. He didn't like the development that was going on while he was alive. He wanted to keep the greenery of England during the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That is true. He did demonize the industrial uh, development a lot. So then from that point of view, I mean, you know, maybe you could look back at people during the Industrial Revolution the factory owners and be like, okay, you guys really are not being nice to your employees. Absolutely. And the labor relations were really bad. However, that development led to our modern world. So let's posit the idea if Sauron had won, what kind of world would we see in Middle Earth? I think we would see a Nazi Germany world. Because I really, he, he, the way that he treated his subjects was for a, a means ends purpose. He, saw, he didn't see them as an end. He saw them as a, as a means. He, he saw the, the, the necessity of that kind of labor and capital in his progressive plans to purely serve the function of creating war against the other peoples of Middle-earth. And once he had conquered them, he, they, would have no per, they would no longer serve a purpose other than to perhaps maintain uh, a strong sense of order and, and, authorit- and authoritarian discipline. And that's exactly what we know from the Silmarillion is that that's what Sauron wants. Sauron wants a world of order and stability above all else where he is in power. Yes, yeah, so um, I don't I don't think we would see uh, a free world in the what like the one we we live in today. I think you'd see a world that might have a bit of um uh, developmentalism in it, but very strict authoritarian rules as if uh, imagine if Germany had won World War 2. So I think I'm right. But then, I mean, that's kind of reminiscent of uh, Soviet Russia to a certain extent. You know, absolutely obsessed with progression. Yes. um, And modernization particularly. But with no freedom. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I think Soviet Russia is a really good... um, It's probably the closest thing we could see to if Mordor had had destroyed Middle-earth. And I think that that's the biggest problem, um, is that in my mind, if Sauron had won, you would have had the ideas of progress, of industrialization, uh, the development of capitalism, the development of modernity, I think, after a while. But the problem is, is that to a, once you reach a certain point, you have to have freedom. Capitalism requires freedom. It requires democracy. And because Sauron is immortal, I mean, he would have had the one ring if he had won. Yeah. So he would have just been leader forever. And without political representation, your development state essentially stalls and can't run anymore, which is exactly what happened to Soviet Russia. Without freedom of thought and innovation, you can't have development past a certain point. Now, that's true. And I don't think I've explained myself very clearly. And I want to agree with you on this. When I was trying to explain the confusion of ends and means... When it comes to seeking modernity, or the, in other words, the process of modernization, you're trying to take a very traditional society and make it modern, and yeah. the, and you're going to and you're going to declare yourself successful once you have fulfilled the three that framework we outlined earlier of the three criteria with industrial uh, success, scientific success, and um, political development. I think if when it, when it the necessity of freedom or, or placing freedom at the end of that process is imperative to maintaining the equality of those three criteria. So mm. whereas if you don't have freedom, if you allow a, a powerful leader to corrupt the system, you go, you, they are going to ne- necessarily prioritize one of those criteria and they're going to forget 
that modernization must be an end in itself. You can't you can't continue. Um, how do I explain this? I'm, he's probably going to end up prioritizing political um, order above industrial progress and um, and scientific progress. So you'll mm. forsake the freedom and the knowledge required to maintain and to maintain um, a, a just and order society. And rather prioritize authority and political structure. And that's when you get a leader like Joseph Stalin taking um, a really successful and well-endowed state like the the USSR and and making it an unfortunate, really backwards, um, unmodernized... No, you're right. And I, I agree with you. And that it brings me to like what I want to be my final point is that from a developmental point of view... You don't necessarily have to start development with freedom. In fact, you could. there are arguments made by very many scholars that say that democracy and freedom can be detrimental to modernization right at the beginning. But once you've modernized to a certain point, you have to have freedom because freedom creates a certain amount of chaos. And within that chaotic society, that's when people start to be their most creative. That's when people start to have new ideas and new abilities and new bringing new things together so that they can create innovation. And that's why we have things like Facebook and iPhones and thinking outside of the box. You can't have that in in an authoritarian regime, which is why we see countries like America rocketing ahead because they're very good at utilizing that innovation and countries like China not doing a huge amount of innovation because of their very strict regimented society. Yeah. And that's, I think, what exactly, you're exactly right. That's what we would see in a Lord of the Rings where Sauron won. You would see development to a certain point and then nothing. Just a stagnation where Sauron is in charge of everybody. Okay, that's it. Okay, just a footnote. Um, the song we used in the opening and closing sequence of this podcast is called The Bridge of Khazadun. It was composed, um, orchestrated, and conducted by... Um, Howard Shaw, who was also the producer of that song, and he did most of the um, score for the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, excellent composer. Um, go listen to the rest of his music. I think it's pretty good. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. We'll upload the episode onto our website, landsoftheviathan.com. You can find it all there along with all our other SoundCloud tracks. And if you'd like any updates on the website, please don't be shy to subscribe to our RSS feed that is also there. We also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. So send us an email at landsoftheviathan at gmail.com. It's L-A-N-D-S-O-F-L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A. And you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast. And you can also listen to our tracks directly on your Android or iPhone um, via the SoundCloud or iTunes app. Hope you enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much.